You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me, and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome. We're going to be doing something a little bit different today, and I know I say that a lot. It is also true today. This is going to be the first episode that features one of my exposure therapy sessions. The recording I'm about to play for you is from my fifth session since I started doing exposure therapy for traumatic invalidation. And I'm going to get into some theory here. I know that my whole deal on this podcast is that we don't spend a huge amount of time talking about theory and that I spend most of my time actually using the skills. But in order to give some context as to what exposure is and why I'm doing it, we're going to need some theory. What is exposure therapy? I'm so glad you asked. I have an answer. To explain why exposure works, we got to talk about PTSD for a second. So PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, as defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. And so you know where I stand in no nuance November, in the words of one of my favorite TikTok videos, all of Western psychology is based on whether or not you act like a white man. I've linked to that TikTok in the description if you want to listen to the whole thing. What a culture pathologizes is a reflection of how much other people's behavior gets in the way of what that culture values. So in a capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal culture like the United States, the medical industrial complex pathologizes behavior that gets in the way of capitalist productivity and white supremacist hierarchy and patriarchal control. So in addition to the utility of the DSM as a way to provide language so people can explain what their experience is, the DSM also functions as a way of gatekeeping, determining who is worthy, in quotes, of support, i.e. who is in bad enough shape to deserve support, 
And that support typically comes in the form of financial support from insurance companies, but also accommodations at schools and jobs. None of what I just said is an original thought. I am paraphrasing from several online content creators who are queer, disabled, mentally ill people of color. And I went through hundreds of my liked posts to find exactly who said <laughs> these things, and I failed. Uh, so if you know folks who have shared this sentiment, uh, let me know. I want to give them credit for it. So getting back to trauma. Before there was PTSD as a diagnosis in the DSM, there was shell shock. And before there was shell shock, there was battle fatigue. And if you weren't a soldier, then you were tough out of luck in terms of having language to describe your experience and being treated as though your experience was valid. So I'm going to be talking today about trauma from the perspective of having a trauma response, i.e. how my nervous system reacts, rather than talking about trauma as a thing that happens. Because two people can experience the exact same event, and one person might have a trauma response and the other might not. So I'm of the school of thought that trauma isn't the thing that happens, but is rather a response our nervous system has. Our nervous system has trauma responses. And some of those responses are acute, so short-term, and some responses become chronic, or long-term. I think most everyone on the planet has experienced an acute trauma response, like, you know, right after a, a car accident, you feel nervous and edgy and maybe you don't feel like getting into a car. Um, right after being shot, you might feel jumpy or loud noises will have you panic. All of this makes total sense, right? Our nervous system is cautious and wants to make sure that we're safe. It's trying to keep us alive. A chronic trauma response is when our trauma response gets hardwired into our brains. I'm thinking of the idiom, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. A chronic trauma response, PTSD, is a survival skill that's gone off the rails. Our nervous system says, hey, this thing happened and it was scary and we were overwhelmed and we hate that overwhelm. We are never going near that thing again. So PTSD becomes chronic as a result of or is maintained by two things problematic beliefs, and avoidance. So I'm going to be quoting the work of Melanie Harned, and she has written a book about the prolonged exposure protocol, but what I'm going to read first actually predates the book that she published. I'm going to read from handouts that I got when I participated as a research subject at the University of Washington's Behavioral Research and Therapy Clinic back in 2016 and 2017. That's when I did my first round of exposure for my first adult rape. Whenever I'm quoting anyone else's work, I turn on some reverb so that I sound like I'm in a Greyhound bus depot, or more accurately, a Greyhound bus depot bathroom. So again, this is from Melanie Harned's work back in 2015. There are two main things that make PTSD stick around over time. Avoidance and problematic beliefs. The role of avoidance. People with PTSD typically avoid in two main ways. Cognitive avoidance, avoiding thoughts and memories about traumatic events. And behavioral avoidance avoiding situations in the world that are reminders of trauma, that are believed to be dangerous, and or that cause intense shame. 
It makes sense that people with PTSD avoid in these ways because avoidance works to decrease fear and other emotions in the short term. For example, a person who is afraid of crowds will become anxious if they are in a crowded store. If the person leaves the store, their fear will come down and they will feel better. However, avoidance makes fear and other emotions worse in the long term. For example, how do you think the person who leaves the crowded store will feel the next time they're in a crowded place? They are very likely to still feel afraid, and in fact, their fear may be even more intense than it was before. That was the role of avoidance. And now I'm going to read the role of problematic beliefs. The reason people avoid things that make them feel fear and other painful emotions is because they believe something terrible will happen if they don't avoid. These types of beliefs usually fall into two main categories. Beliefs about danger, like the world is extremely dangerous, I will be attacked or hurt, and negative beliefs about the self. I'm weak and incompetent, I'll go crazy or lose control if I have intense emotions. The problem is that avoidance makes it impossible to find out if problematic beliefs are accurate. For example, if a person avoids crowds because they believe they will be attacked, then they will never have a chance to learn that the likelihood of being attacked in a crowd is very low. Similarly, if a person avoids crowds because they think they will get so anxious that they will scream and pass out, then avoiding crowds will prevent them from finding out if this actually happens. So those are the roles of problematic beliefs and avoidance in maintaining PTSD. Which brings us now to how exposure works. So now I'm reading from Melanie Harned's Treating Trauma in Dialectic Behavior Therapy, the DBT Prolonged Exposure Protocol, or DBTPE. So this is on page 372. DBTPE uses three core procedures to treat PTSD. One, in vivo exposure involves confronting situations you avoid in real life. You will be asked to gradually approach people, places, and things you've been avoiding because they remind you of your trauma, feel dangerous, or bring up distressing emotions. This will help you learn that these situations are not harmful and you can cope with them, which will make them less distressing. Number two, imaginal exposure involves repeatedly describing traumatic events out loud during your therapy sessions. By talking and thinking in detail about what happened to you, your trauma memories will become less overwhelming and will be less likely to come up unexpectedly at other times. And number three, processing involves talking with your therapist about the emotions and thoughts that arise as a result of imaginal exposure. The goal is to help you gain a new perspective about the traumas you have experienced that will cause you less distress and enable you to change unhelpful trauma-related patterns in your life. So that's how exposure works. Now, before I play the main recording, I want to start with a short clip from my first exposure therapy session that took place on March 15th, 2022. This is me telling the story of a conversation I had with my dad. And I'm sharing this as a way of highlighting the contrast between where I started with exposure versus what you're going to hear later on in the episode that takes place five weeks later. So take note of how incredibly short this telling of the memory is. It's so short that in the 20 minutes that we schedule for the actual memory telling, the imaginal part, I had time to tell this eight times. 
Typically, I only have time to tell a memory twice. Also, you're going to hear my therapist's voice, which has been shared with their permission and with their voice altered for their privacy. Um, they're going to be interjecting, asking for SUDS. And SUDS stands for Subjective Units of Distress, which is a, a quick and dirty way to let my therapist know how much distress I'm feeling. And they are out of 100 already. So here's the clip from my first exposure therapy session. So um, I'm having a conversation with my dad in the kitchen or in the dining room. Um, wherein I'm expressing concern that uh, what happened in Indiana, the rape that happened there, will just keep happening with future partners um, because I don't know how to prevent it from happening. And my dad said something to the effect of um, if you leave, if you park your car and you leave it unlocked in a bad part of town, um, and I don't remember the specifics of how the rest of the conversation went, but I said something, or he, he said something to the effect that the take home I got was that while it's not the fault of the person who breaks into the car, I mean, it is the fault of the person who broke into the car. Um, like, they're wrong, still wrong for doing that, and there are things, actions I could have taken that would have changed the outcome or prevented it from happening. Suds? 50. Okay, welcome back to the future. Again, what you just heard is from my first exposure session. And I didn't have access to really how I felt or any of my thoughts that I had in that memory. I was just relaying the facts of what I said and what my dad said, which is a stark contrast from what I'm about to play for you. My full therapy session from April 12th, 2022. And I'm recording this commentary on November 19th, 2022, so seven months later. The recording is going to start off with my therapist going over the exposure forms that I filled out during the previous week. Each day in the week between my sessions, I did an imaginal exposure, which was listening to my memory recorded from the previous session. And I also did an in vivo exposure, which at the time was listening to a New York Times interview with Donna Rotano, Harvey Weinstein's then lawyer. This is the interview where she was asked if she'd ever been sexually assaulted, and she responded, quote, I have not, because I've never put myself in that position, which is great fun. So when the recording starts, um, my therapist and I are talking about my exposure forms for those tasks. I fill out these forms, answer questions about worst case scenario, whether or not the worst case scenario happened, my emotional state before, during, and after exposure, etc. I've mentioned these forms in previous episodes. If you want to see what an exposure form looks like, I link to one in the description and I've shared examples on my Instagram account too that you can go take a look at. Now, typically the bulk of the skills that I use in these recordings are from the DBT manual. 
If you're new to the podcast, first off, welcome. And second off, DBT is a therapy modality that stands for dialectic behavioral therapy and is my therapy type of choice. The DBT manual was written by Marsha Linehan, and I've linked it in the description, both in PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy. And this episode is unusual because I'm not actually going through a skill step by step. You're going to hear my therapist and me name a couple skills in session. But the bulk of what I'm doing in this episode is using the observe and describe skills from DBT. Observe and describe are mindfulness skills. They're in the mindfulness module of the DBT manual, specifically mindfulness handout four, taking hold of your mind, what skills, which describe the things we do, the what we do when we're practicing mindfulness. So in this recording you're about to hear, I spend a lot of time noticing what's going on in my body, paying attention to how I feel, to the thoughts that I'm having, to the emotions that I'm having, and describing them in a non-judgmental way. I've talked about non-judgment in past episodes, if you want to go take a gander at some of those. So this episode is going to be a little different because we're not doing a skill, you know, step by step. It's more kind of using the skills ad hoc, like on the fly. So I think I've oriented you to (laughs) enough theory, and now we're going to get into the meat of the episode. So past joy, take it away. All right, kind of we'll follow the usual protocol of going through your kind of exposure forms um, and um, making the plan for this week's in vivos. Um, Then we'll do 20 minutes of imaginal, then 20 minutes of processing. Um, Then we'll do, we'll have that time um, to go over diary card and do that stuff. That work for you? Perfection. Okay, great. All right, so I've got your exposure forms up. Let me kind of go back to it. Okay. Okay. Looks like dissociation was not there. Discussed. Okay, so some of those thoughts of like, I caused this were coming up. The um, in vivo one on the 8th is kind of the, um, what did I, what did I learn during the exposure task is, (laughs) feel like a kind of the, quintessence of my experience future joy here the april 8th in vivo that i just mentioned was listening to harvey weinstein's lawyer and here is what i wrote on my exposure form in answer to the question what did i learn during this exposure task i noticed having the urge to have someone else listen to this recording like a can you believe this shit sort of urge But under that is the desire to have someone else listen to it and to pick apart the argument the lawyer is making and to validate my experience of listening to this recording. Because the lawyer is so even and, in quotes, logical and presents her case so clearly. And I have this massive pit in my stomach. And I have the thought that it means I can't have been traumatized and that I should have known better. And I'm not validating that experience. I want someone else to validate it for me. It feels too overwhelming to do it for myself. 
I have the thought, please don't make me lay out all my contacts and all my thoughts and all my beliefs. Please don't make me put together this briefing of my life so that I can explain, i.e. convince, that my experience of listening to this recording makes sense. I keep thinking of the idea of sea lioning. Just the act of making an assertion and stating this is how I feel feels insurmountable because I'm expecting to have to put together a thesis document defending that, providing data, providing peer-reviewed sources. I watch myself suppress even observing how I feel because I have the belief that if I know how I feel, I'll have to defend or explain it. And I just want to be able to feel my feelings without having to argue in favor of them. And now back to the recording. The, the big thing I realized on the, for the in vivo one on the 8th was... I was looking at imaginal. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's okay. Future joy here again. Um, so the imaginal task that I just mentioned was listening to the retelling of my memory that I recorded in the previous therapy session. And here is what I wrote on my exposure form answering this question. What did I learn during this exposure task? I didn't guess right on what's the worst because I didn't put down what actually ended up happening. This sense of having poison injected into my body and now it just lives there. There's no obvious emotion. It's more like intense stress, tension, and it keeps increasing and increasing and nothing that I was saying was validating it. I keep having the thought that I'm telling the story wrong. I keep focusing on my thoughts now instead of what I actually remember my thoughts being. Because what I actually remember is very short and very limited, and I'm not telling that accurately. And that is stressing me out on top of everything else. And now back to the recording. Um, there's dread that I have around, please don't make me explain this. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of... I have, to, in order to make an assertion about my experience, I have to have all of this data. I have, have to have all this proof. I have to have support for it and, and everything else. And it's, yeah, it's dread. Okay. And it just occurred to me, I may have been getting this wrong this whole time. Because I've been, I've been diagnosing it as disgust. Okay. Because that's the best approximation of what I'm feeling really all it is because there's no thoughts there's no urges associated with it it's just like tension in the pit of my stomach mm -hmm. it may very well be dread actually it's not fear oh. it's like a distinct it's just I mean it's a flavor of fear I guess okay but just like I told my sister it feels like I've been injected with poison mm -hmm. it's like now I have this thing that I have no way of explaining to anyone else and if I try, like, even thinking about trying to explain it to somebody else is impossible. And now it's just going to live inside me and make me feel sick. As in, like, your experience of these in vivos is that? Or talk to me about what you mean. Um, well, so in the, in the imaginals, the experience mm -hmm. of that imaginal, like, of, of that memory. Like, actually, when it happened. Mm -hmm. And then doing the imaginal part, like re retelling it to you mm. and then doing the imaginal throughout the week and then also doing the in vivo with uh, the lawyer thing. 
is all kind of prompting this sense of dread. Yeah. Or just like serious, I mean, I got it, I have it right now. Like massive tension in my stomach. Okay. But it's been really hard to put my finger on it because there's nothing else. There's just like no thoughts, no urges. I imagine, right, fear would make sense to me, right? We're doing something that's really challenging for you, right? That brings up a lot for you. And disgust also makes sense because I've seen you have very real disgust responses as we've been in session, right? Um, And dread, right? I would put dread, how's dread under kind of fear, right? Because dread, I think of like as worry that something's going to happen almost, but it's a little different. It feels maybe heavier than worry. Yeah, yeah. Um, And what's interesting is both of those things, like fear and disgust, both have an avoidance component. of like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know? Fear of being running away from a thing and disgust being like, ew, I don't want to go near that thing. So, I don't know. It's, it's been, I don't know, it's been challenging to identify. And I think just identifying the feeling you have in your body is enough, right? We don't have to be so precise about what exactly the emotion is, right? I think as long as you are allowing the feeling to come up and kind of riding the wave of that, that's okay. Cool. Um, Let me see. Let's see. What else? Okay. See some self-validation on the ninth. Uh, in vivo or imaginal? Um, imaginal. Hey, look at me. Future joy here again. A reminder: the imaginal task that I just mentioned was listening to my retelling of the memory that I recorded in the previous therapy session. And here was what I wrote on my exposure form on the ninth, answering the question: What did I learn during this exposure task? Takeaway is that I went in search of support around this fear, i.e. validation that this was a scary thought to not know how to solve this problem. And dad gave me an additional thing to be worried about, akin to when he said that men are visual and they reach a point of arousal that they can't control. And now I know this thing about my dad. Now I have this in the back of my mind whenever we interact. I'm still feeling, I think it's disgust in my body without accompanying thoughts, just a sick feeling. And now back to the recording. Oh yes. Okay, still feeling pretty high disgust, that makes sense. No numbness this time. That's some invalidation is all my interpretation. How can we check the facts on that? What do you remember? We've checked the facts on this before. Yeah. Um, and I kind of go in and out of being able to access that. Clearly, I'm out of it currently. <laughs> I mean, I guess the dialectic is that it can be both. Mm-hmm. There is a component of it that's my interpretation, and there's a component of it of this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Because the fact is, it is what happened, right? These words were said to you. Yes. 
but that I have it that I'm the one who's making them mean that I'm being invalidated. There's an impact that words have on us, right? Any words that are said have some impact on us. Yeah. We are always responding, right, to what has what is being said to us in some way, right? Sometimes we might respond neutrally, right? Sometimes we might we might respond positively. And sometimes we might respond feeling horrible, right? We don't necessarily have control over whether or not we feel invalidated or validated. Well, I think of like, if I wrote something and you found a typo in it and said, Joy, you have a typo. And mm -hmm. I instantly go into a shame spiral of, oh my God, like I'm a horrible human. Like I'll never amount to anything. I shouldn't create anything. It's not because of anything you said. Like, I mean, you said the phrase that then I had, I'm added meaning to, I added an interpretation to it. Like, sure. joy, you have a typo does not mean joy, you're a horrible human, you know? Right. So I may not have had any intent on what I said, right, from what I said, but what I said still had an impact, right? I don't know that it's fair to compare, hey, you have a typo to what your dad said to you in this imaginal. So this is, this is where I have all this internalized stuff because he would say, he would say that I am like painting him as the villain and listening to him with the expectation that he invalidate me. So like, like I go into these conversations like primed to have that listening of him and he would also say that Satan twists his words. He was intending to help me. So if I'm being if I'm being impacted by it other than how my dad intended, then it's because of Satan. And he can believe that. <laughs> he can. Yeah. That doesn't mean that that's what you have to believe. Or that that's what's true. Give me, give me a second. He can believe that. That doesn't mean that's what I have to believe or that it's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, give me a second. That one's gonna need a second to solidify. He can believe that. That doesn't mean I have to believe it or that it's true. I don't know what's happening right now, but that feels like a, um, a paradigm shift of some kind. It's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it all makes sense, right? Because, like, it's not only that, you know, he was my dad still is my dad like it was beyond just i'm the, he's an authority figure it's he's an authority figure who also is like my spiritual right whatever so it was like another level up of of uh, being an authority figure
think what I've been doing is I've been operating under the assumption that, like, if I were to have this conversation with my dad and, like, actually say to him that this was invalidating, that however he responded would be the truth. Mm-hmm. If he said, no, it wasn't, or, you know, you're, you're making it mean that, or whatever, um, and I have internalized what I imagine his response to be, mm-hmm. and I'm using that to invalidate yourself myself what is my brain feels like what happens if you take a bunch of jewelry and you shake it up in a box and all the like necklaces get all tangled up or yarn or headphone cords Your brain has so much practice in validating you. My brain has so much practice in validating me or so much practice in... In validating you. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, it looks for ways, right, to to invalidate right because you were also taught that because i was also taught that well certainly i was taught that like my experience was not the truth god is the truth so it didn't matter checking like what was the point of checking in about what i wanted the point like it's important what God wants. What was the point of checking in about what I wanted my, you know, what I saw as my purpose? It was what God wanted me to do with my life that mattered. So like, there was no point in ever knowing myself. It was only really necessary to know what God wanted for me. I don't like this. Okay. This is part of the work we're doing. We're trying to develop and instill a sense of trust in yourself. And it's hard because it's going to take time. Yeah, and practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think of when my sister and I play catch and we purposely do it with our left hands because we're Mm -hmm. both right-handed. That like for a while it feels like like, I don't even know my own body. It's so foreign. I'm like, this is wrong. Everything about this feels wrong. And then if we stick with it, by the end of an hour, we're actually quite good. And then we don't do it for a while, and we go back to the drawing board again. Mm-hmm. So it's just going to feel unnatural and wrong. Right. For a while. For some time. Mm-hmm. Fine. <laughs> And it might take willingness, right? Uh, right. My old friend, willingness. Okay. Right, because I'm seeing as a, I'm seeing kind of a theme across the board with a lot of these exposures is that there is this theme of like not trusting yourself, right? 
yeah, and the added layer of like, I don't trust myself from for what actually happened. I don't trust myself in remembering what actually happened. And then I'm also adding another layer of like, if I were to go talk to my dad about this, here's what I anticipate he would say. And then I preemptively invalidate myself around that too, even though that's not happening. And we might need to sort of use mindfulness of current thought when that comes up, right? Yeah. Kind of shelf shelf those thoughts about what dad would say. Yeah. Because what dad would say doesn't change what happened to you. What dad would say doesn't change what happened to me. What? Okay. Doesn't it though? Like if I say this happened here and he goes, Joy, that's not what happened. Doesn't his perspective on what happened supersede my own? What do you think the answer to that question is? This is part of the problem, right? Because, like, I understand everybody has their own perspective on a thing, so my perspective is not the end-all, be-all of it. And I understand that my memory is fallible, as is everyone's. So I have always had a value of wanting to be open to hearing other people's experiences. Sure. And, like, taking in that information as a way of, like, fleshing out my experience. But this has been a problem going back to um, my first rape experience as an adult of like, this thing happened and the dude going, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And yet you experienced a very real impact from what happened, right? Well, and it's, it's kind of like, because my memories of these things are so fragmented, even immediately after they happen it would be like if you and i were hanging out and i was blindfolded and i'm asking you hey what does the world look like i have to rely on you because i don't have that information so it's been confusing because there's pieces that are missing and the only person who can tell me what's there is the other is the dude who's there and they're telling me it didn't happen so my brain gets all discombobulated. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like the only person who can tell you their perspective on what happened. Right? Oh no. Right. Because it's not fact. Oh God. Just because someone else perceives it in some way, right? How you feel is fact, right? Then what is truth? Like, how do I ever determine objective truth? I don't know if I can answer that. Moving on to philosophy class. <laughs> uh. But these are, these are the kinds of challenges I want you to try to engage with, right? Oh my God. Like the challenges to this perception that you made it up, 
Okay, so what I'm noticing, mm -hmm. and I said this goes back to first adult, right? This goes back all the way to the beginning of my life, is the belief and then operating from that belief as though um, it's kind of like the toddler I hang out with. When he's trying something new, he's constantly looking to an adult and being like, huh? Mm -hmm. And some of it is he's looking to be like applauded. And some of it he's looking to be like, did I do it right? Yeah. And I kind of go through life, not with the wanting to be applauded part, but the checking in, is this, is this what happened? Mm -hmm. And have never developed the ability to have any sort of confidence or trust in my own experience. This is very uncomfortable. Okay. I think you you are developing trust in your experience. I have heard you say things, right, that suggest you have strong passions, things you care about, right? Those are parts of your own experience and belief system. That shows me you have some trust in how you feel at times. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's interesting. <laughs> Without fail, those are things that I do exclusively alone. <laughs> mm. um, running the stairs, going to the gym, embroidery, all of this stuff. I even, like, my dad will be watching a movie and I will be watching it in my room. <laughs> because mm. we're watching the same thing, but separately. Um because, like, what happens in here is there's there's no one else to tell me it didn't happen that way. God. Okay. So I'm looking at time. Yep. I think it might be time for us to start the imaginals. But just briefly, I think perhaps continuing with this same in vivo this week and seeing how it goes. Great. I mean, it's good. It's fine. It needs to, I need to do at least another week of it, maybe two, so. Okay. All right. So I'm just going to make a note. Same in vivo. Um, but let's begin with the imaginal. Try to remember to stay in the memory as best you can. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of reverse engineer how we got into the memory um, because I don't remember what prompted me coming out of my room to talk to someone about this thought of oh my god I don't know how to keep this from happening but something triggered an urge to talk about that thing um, something triggered the thought and then the urge to talk about it do I need suds, by the way? Yes, thank you. Um, 50 right now. Okay, what's the worst possible outcome? Um, not know, uh, the thought that I don't know what's true. Um, derealization or depersonalization. Um, and really strong tension 
sick feeling in my stomach. Okay. Okay, so the conversation starts in the kitchen. I don't remember how it's going. Um, I do remember that there's there's tension it's we're not like talking at cross purposes the sense of like being out of step in the conversation mm-hmm. it's like I'm playing catch with a baseball and he's playing catch with a football mm-hmm. um and so I'm there's I'm feeling frustrated I'm feeling unheard having the thought I'm not explaining myself well he's not understanding it he's not getting it and then we moved into the dining room and at some point he said, you know, if you leave your car unlocked in a bad part of town, and it was kind of like a, a record scratch moment internally of like, that feels bad. And then There is a cacophony, a, a waterfall, a deluge, that's the word, of this very familiar feeling of like, that feels bad, and I have no way of explaining why. Like, I don't know what terms to Google. I don't know how to present an argument. Like, I don't know, I'm gonna need to get together like a bunch of resources to explain. I need to know what what it's called, what is that? There's an, is it victim blaming? I don't know. There's a thing, Um, there's like an, there's gotta be a name for this list of rules that people have about here's how you stay not sexually assaulted and there must be think pieces that exist people explaining why that's problematic I need to find all of those there's like this urgency of like oh my god I'm going to have to do so much work to explain to him but also to myself Like, I need to, I need to know what all the terms are. I need to know what the mechanisms are so that I can validate this bad feeling that I feel inside. Cause it, it does, it feels like I was just injected with poison. Um, but it, 
now it's my responsibility to identify what the poison is and then to create the antidote <laughs> and then to defang the snake <laughs> um, while also, you know, being filled with poison. Um, what happened next? The conversation continued. I don't remember what um, either of us said, aside from, I do know at some point he clarified that it is still the fault of the person who breaks into the car for breaking into the car. Like that's still an illegal thing that they did. Um, and there were things that I could have done as the parker of the car to mitigate my risk of having my car broken into. Um, I am not clear on whether he is using that to reference the past. Like there's things I could have done to keep myself safe mm -hmm. or the future. Like, hey, now we know there are things you could do next time to keep yourself safe. Um, I know I reacted like the feelings I had internally was of being blamed. Like I felt defensive and sucks. 50. Um, And I don't have, there's just, I feel like a, a blocked pipe or hose. There's like all of this pressure building up and I have no way of relieving the pressure. And the relieving the pressure is explaining to him the impact of what he's saying in a way that has him hear me. Um, like I keep trying. I know like, I know how the conversation went. It was still this very much like cross purposes thing. We weren't, we weren't connecting on it. We weren't, he wasn't getting my experience and I just kept getting more and more frustrated. I don't know if I showed my frustration or if I kept it all bottled up, but eventually the conversation ended and I was left feeling worse than mm -hmm. before I went into the conversation. Cause when I went into the conversation, it was, here's this scary thought. I don't know how to prevent this from happening. And leaving, I still have this scary thought because I still don't know how to prevent it from happening. And I've also, I'm also feeling blamed. And I'm also, I've also been told that there is a solution, but I don't know how to apply that solution to my life. So there's also this like, the feeling of trying to do like calculus in my, like mental calculus like well clearly there's an answer and I have to figure it out and I don't know how to do that which 
means that it will continue to be my fault because I could have figured it out and could have prevented it, but I still don't know how to figure it out. So that's... 60. <laughs> my gut is so unhappy right now. It's like a, a fist. All right. Shall we start from the top? Okay. Something had prompted the thought, I don't know how to prevent sexual assaults from continuing to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's scary. I'm like, oh shit, this could just keep happening. So I had left my room and started talking to dad in the kitchen. I know that much preceded us talking in the dining room. Mm -hmm. And I know that by the time we moved into the dining room, I was feeling frustrated. Like I wasn't feeling like he was getting my experience and we were kind of like butting heads. Um, I didn't feel heard. Uh, he was fixing. And I wanted him to understand that, hey, this is a scary thought I am having. I feel scared about it. Sons? 50. At some point, I move into the dining room and at some point, he says, you know, if you leave your car unlocked in a bad part of town, that's the specific phrase I remember. Um, I know that he continued the metaphor beyond that. Um, something to the effect of like, you know, like your car gets broken into. That's, a, that's what happens. Um, and I know I felt defensive internally. I don't know if I responded defensively. Probably did, but I don't remember. Um, and it felt... It felt bad on so many levels. And the immediate emotional, like internal emotional response is kind of like, <laughs> I have a 5,000 piece puzzle that's just a rainbow, like mm -hmm. a gradient of color. My internal emotional response is like when I dump that thing out and it's like, okay, so there's a lot that needs to happen here. I need to separate out the edges. I need to separate out, I need to turn all of it over. So it's all right face up and I need to like group th things by color and I need to group things lighter to darker, but also red to purple and like all of this stuff. There's a lot that needs to happen. And it's kind of like that of, okay, hang on. So you're saying a thing and there's a lot that's bad about it. There's some victim blamey stuff going on. Um, 
I, I need to find data. Well, first, I need to identify what this thing was he just did. That's why I love a good diagnosis. I'm like, great, it's something I can Google. If I don't have the name for the thing, my Google searches are much less effective. I'm like, okay, so I need to identify exactly what just happened. Was it victim blaming? Is there another term that I should be, is this, should I be Googling rape culture? Um, is there a name for this list? Is there a name for the function of this list that we give people as a way to keep them safe? Like, I need to identify all of the different components of what he just said, and then I need to research it, and then I need to come up with data to support why what he's saying is not effective. All of this stuff, and it's... So instead of helping me, I just got handed... It's like, here's a book report you need to do. Like, that's mm -hmm. kind of my internal, like, this is going to take so much work to tease apart. Even if I don't go back and present this argument to him, I have to identify for myself why this is problematic. Because if, oh no. Because if I don't do that, if I don't figure out why it's problematic, then it, it must be that I feel bad because I'm interpreting it wrong. I need the identification, the diagnosis of the problematic part to allow me to feel bad. Sounds 60. You're doing great. Well, and what's weird is like, I know this, my son's 70 is when I, when I tip over to like my emo my motion runs running the show thinking mine is offline right now all of it's my gut <laughs> like i'm i'm averaging it across my body and i'm like okay so it's really just my gut that's the problem so my suds are still pretty low but like my gut is so tense right now like if we just did suds for my gut i'd be like probably up at an 80. okay So you were saying, like, if you don't figure out why it was problematic, right, then... Then it was my interpretation of it that's the problem. Like, if I... D I need the research to allow me to feel bad. To I need someone else to say, oh, well, what he just did was blame you. And it's not in line with the facts, because here's all this data that suggests that it actually isn't about opportunistic, like... Oh, dude walking by the car and seeing it's unlocked. No, it's like that there's actual predators who are actually seeking people out, blah, 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 blah. I, like, I have this sudden attachment to, I need to find all of that information. I need to collate it. I need to present, like, make it linear uh, or, like, create some sort of branching tree where I know what the relationships are between all of these things so that... I'm allowed to feel how I feel. Um, so it's likely, it's almost assuredly, that I um, stopped listening at that point because I was doing all these mental gymnastics internally because I don't remember the details of the rest of the conversation aside from at one point he does clarify that it's still the fault of the person who broke in for breaking into the car, um, like it's still illegal. Um, they should not have done that. 
and there were things I could do to change the outcome. And again, not clear on whether that's past-based, like there's things I could have done to have prevented my sexual assaults that already happened, or there's things I can do in the future. And I just have the experience, like, he just gave me this thing I need to detangle or decode. Like, I think of like reading comprehension problems where it's like, here, read this paragraph and they answer these 12 questions and you read the questions and you're like, this paragraph doesn't answer these questions. And your instructor is like, yes, it does. You just have to know where to look. And I'm like, I can't, I can't tease out the relevant information that will change my behavior and tell me how to change my behavior from the information he just gave me. But he thinks he's just given me that information. Slugs. 70. So I'm feeling confused. unsupported like kind of like left left to save myself unhelped unheard and as though you know I had this thing I started the conversation with here's a scary thought isn't this a scary thought and now I have I still have that here's a scary thought it's still scary and now I have this poison in my gut on top of that. And the conversation ends at some point, but nothing gets resolved. And in fact, more gets added to mm-hmm. concerns. Sucks. 60. All right. So let's let's stop there. It seems like suds were kind of hovering 50, 60 for most of this, but got towards 70 at the end there. Yeah. What was happening that suds went up? Like when I really get into um, that feeling of that desperation of, oh my God, I need to go do all this research to label what just happened. Um, like that's a, that's a very familiar feeling. And it's, there's grief associated with it. There's isolation. There's having gone through my entire life, not being able to explain to other people what is going on inside me. I think that's the, it's not anywhere near as bad as, but it has the same flavor as like locked in syndrome. Um, Are you familiar with that one? It's where your brain is fully functioning. 
and your mm-hmm. body is completely paralyzed, and the only thing you can do is blink. Ah. Mm-hmm. And so you're having thoughts, you're having urges, you're having needs, you're wanting to say things, you know how to speak, you just can't do any of that. So the entirety of your communication is through blinking. Mm-hmm. And like my version of blinking right now is TikTok videos. <laughs> I keep finding videos and like sending them to Ruth and I'm like, this is my experience. Um, and I have the same thing with when I, when I encounter a term, um, that I can like victim blaming was such a big deal. Revictimization, secondary traumatization, uh, trauma repetition, like all of these things, these terms, when I encountered them, it was just like, Oh my God, now I can wiggle my pinky. You know, like now I can like shake my head or something like it it afforded me another way of communicating what it feels like inside me. But like when I crawl into this memory, I feel like literally like completely trapped in my body and unable to articulate any of the thoughts that I'm having and why I'm having them and like because I can't I can't justify them I can't explain them mm-hmm. and in order for my dad to hear me I have to <laughs> so it's just this impossible like an unsolvable puzzle unsolvable puzzle so it sounds like you're kind of recognizing that in this memory when this happened you didn't have language that you needed. Yes. I didn't have the language to communicate whatever was going on inside me. Oh God. What happened just now? Um, well, I think there's grief. Um, The isolation of not having language. And like, not having language in and of itself is isolating, but then not having language and that experience, like, my parents don't know what that experience is like. They don't know the frustration of it. Like, there's something that's happening inside me and it makes sense, but not from the outside. And I'm being judged for it. Um, I just learned the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown, mm-hmm. like an autistic meltdown. And they look identical from the outside, but a tantrum is based is ineffective communication around a need. And once mm-hmm. that need is met, like, here's that ice cream cone you're screaming about, the emotional reaction stops. With the meltdown, there's usually the straw that breaks the camel's back, like this is the last thing. But even once that need is met, the meltdown doesn't stop. Right. Which... 
which is why my dad called me stubbornly negative because he would go to solve the last thing, the, the last straw, and it didn't solve my meltdown. Because the meltdown is about sensory overload and like the, my nervous system being mm -hmm. freaking out. But it happened with and he would like go to solve the problem and it didn't solve the problem. So when I found there was a TikTok that explained this and I just had this wave of relief and grief. Relief that now I have language for that and grief that I've gone this long being this misunderstood. I have with Ruth about this stuff she says like she's enjoying like getting to know me on a much more profound level and there's a there's relief there but there's also like I'm 38 years old and all this time like they had these, my family had these stories about me. Another TikTok I saw was that toxic parents treat, punish their children. They assume negative intent when their kids disobey, as opposed to like, this is just a natural part of development or whatever. I think it's being willful. Mm -hmm. um, like I was related to as having malicious intent, but no way to, I didn't have language for it. This is so understandably painful for you. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> it really struck me when you said the isolation of not having language. Really, yeah, it's the irony being like the thing that triggered the tears is you said you that I didn't have language, mm -hmm. and then I added the the uh, like the internal experience of that to it. And I look back and like a lot of things click into place of why when I learn a term, it feels like <sighs> I can breathe. There's data. There's proof. A lot of times I feel like I'm held underwater and there's not being able to breathe, but then there's also the combativeness of like, when one's held underwater, one doesn't just, I mean, I, pro I suppose the most effective thing to do is to play dead, you know? But like our instinct is to fight. So when I'm held underwater, there's all of this mental energy that goes into, I have to prove, I have to explain, I have to figure this out. There's so much work mm -hmm. that I'm doing. And this is the first time I've gone through the memory and actually accessed that feeling of the puzzle being dumped out and being like, put this together now. Your survival your validation depends on you putting this puzzle together. So I'm thrashing around mentally, and when I can finally find a word for it, 
I remember finding that word victim blaming and it was just like, <sighs> because it, it, it's like given being given the key to a library. Now I know what term to search for, mm-hmm. which means I'm going to find just so many references and resources about this thing. And it's like being given a, the front of the box of the puzzle. It's like, mm-hmm. here's how you put all of this together. But without that, it's incredibly, incredibly isolating, which is why my closest friends in the entire world are all mentally ill and most of them have trauma. Mm-hmm. So we don't need language. There's more easily accessible understanding. Yep. Yeah, my friend Ebony once had a like massive dissociation event in a QFC in the water bottle aisle looking for like fizzy water. So now when we talk about feeling dissociated after a therapy session, it's like it's like it's the water bottle aisle of the QFC and that's our shorthand for it. And it's lovely that we have that because like I know what that experience feels like. They know what that experience feels like. And it's why like I drifted away from all of my previous friends who, I mean, everybody has some sort of trauma, but they weren't processing it or weren't aware of it or whatever. And it's like, I didn't know how to, I don't know how to talk to them anymore. Cause I still don't have language to explain to somebody who doesn't know what it's like. So yeah. I think that the fact that you were able to access this today is really huge. It shows me that you are we're making progress here, right? With with engaging with this memory. This is some new new learning for you. Well it's It's been weird telling it up till now because I know that when he said that it was like, you know, throwing a bomb into an orchestra pit. Mm -hmm. It was just like internally cacophony. It was just chaos. It was like, oh shit. But I couldn't have told you what the chaos was, like what, what was going on. And then realizing, I'm like, oh, I have that experience all the time. And that's overwhelming, too. I have the thought that that's overwhelming. Just being present with my experience. kind of want to just take this recording and give it to the diagnostician I'm going to be meeting with in a month. And be like, I'm not going to answer any more questionnaires. Just listen to this and you tell me if I'm neurodivergent. <laughs> You have more language to describe your experience right now. You are increasing that. Yeah. And it's still, it's still new enough where I feel like I have to whip out my pocket dictionary. Like I know I have much more language around like describing PTSD than I used to. Mm-hmm. And I'm still not great at describing it to people who've never experienced it. There's an exhaustion, like a preemptive like exhaustion around the idea of 
oh, I have to go into my archives and I have to put this all together again. Mm. Because it's like I do the puzzle, I've done the puzzle now here in session, and then I take it apart and I put it back in the box. Because mm-hmm. I don't memorize everything we just said to each other. And there is, I can feel it like the dread of trying to explain this to somebody else, which is why the recording feels so like, oh, I can just send the audio. <laughs> I can transcribe it and just like write it all down and be like, here, here's what I got. Because mm-hmm. there's, yeah, there's still some like overwhelm around recreating or regurgitating stuff like this like big kind of epiphanies and shifts and stuff they take time to percolate right i think you were sort of taking moments earlier to sort of allow some things to percolate right i was like stop talking (laughs) and that's okay right sometimes we need to give ourselves time to process yeah i appreciate your your patience in letting me feels like my brain is jello that's solidifying or curing that's concrete jello doesn't cure um i am honored to be alongside you in this process thank you mm-hmm. it's a relief that that video that tiktok i sent you that in the comments everybody's like was it Marissa was the name of the therapist? It's like, Marissa's everyone's therapist, and she's a menace. It's it's not a bad description, because I have that experience, like, when you drop truth, like, when you were saying earlier things about, like, your dad can have that thought, and that doesn't mean it's truth. I was just like, what are you doing? You're creating chaos in my brain. And it's good and necessary chaos. <laughs> Yeah, it's very uncomfortable, but like, as my mom says, it's pain with a purpose. Mm. <sighs> okay. <sighs> Did you want to um, do diary cards? You feel ready to shift? Sure. I think there's a lot of relief that's going through my system, but also like still like discomfort. So I'm like, my body's just like... We don't know what's happening. Okay. And that may come down, right? Yeah. Let me bring up your diary card. Okay. Okay, looks like sadness and anger, pretty low level. Shame as well. Disgust very high this week. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay, self-harm urges at a two. Suicidal ideation at a one. Seems like staying pretty low. For the moment. Yep, yep. Okay. No self-harm. Meds is prescribed all week. Nice work. Lots of consistent exercise. No lying. No reaching out to exes or dating apps. No ineffective communication. Effective communication every day. Nice. Okay. Let's see. What do we need to do about sleep hygiene? Ah, yes. Um, yeah, I was like 50-50 this week. Um, so I'm taking my meds consistently at 11. Okay. 
which means that I should be able to go to sleep by like 1230. I'm not doing it <laughs> consistently. Like I'm, I'm fighting through the fatigue. Um, partially because I've been enjoying the embroidery that I'm working on. Okay. Um, I actually just finished it. So, uh, the alarm that I have for my meds has been really effective hearing my own voice. Future Joy here again. This is what I recorded and set as my alarm to remind me to take my evening medications. Stop what you're doing and take your evening meds. Get a water bottle, get your meds, take them now. I'm just going to keep talking until you take them. Don't turn me off. Don't turn me off. Take your meds. Go fill up your water bottle if you need to. Take your meds and then you can turn me off. Don't do it. Don't turn me off until you've taken your meds. Do you have water? Go get more water and then take your meds. And now back to the recording. I think I need to um, I need to do that for um, bedtime, like starting at like twelve fifteen. Okay. Um, be like, hey, wind down whatever you're doing. Go brush your teeth. Okay. So alarm for sleep routine. Great. Let's see. Let's sick, disgust. That's self care. Great. Closure. Okay. Yes, I see lots of embroidery happening this week. That makes sense. So it seems like there's almost a couple added exposures that you did here uh, with Hannah Gadsby's book. I had to stop. Okay. Um, it was it was too much. Um, everything's a trigger right now. Like literally everything is a trigger. I'm super sensitive to mm-hmm. all the things. So. Um, it makes sense to me that you're feeling a little bit more raw right now, right? Yeah. Like my nervous system is kind of primed and ready to go, like on a hair trigger, so. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you are noticing, right? You're noticing when that's happening and kind of working to take care of yourself. I'm seeing there's like self-care happening, going to the gym, things like that. Yeah, and I had a, a very helpful conversation with Ruth because I was really struggling with identifying like what emotion I was feeling. And she's mm-hmm. like, what if you didn't have to identify it? What if you could just be like, this is how my body feels right now. And that's mm-hmm. how it feels, whether I understand how it feels or not. And then she also suggested, um, she's like, what if you like did your self-care intentionally rather than kind of like ad hoc? Do the thing that you actually are like, I'd rather stay home and eat an entire pack of Twizzlers than drink wine and watch Netflix. She's like, do it. (laughs) Yeah, I've also been noticing I I don't want to watch new things. Um, I have Mm -hmm. my comfort shows. Yeah. Um, The familiarity, like I don't want to have to learn new characters or any of that. So. Sure. And that's totally, that's great, right? Kind of noticing that and giving yourself those moments of care. I'm on board with what Ruth is saying, right? Intentional self-care, right? It's sort of like please skill, but in addition to please skill, right? Yeah. Having intentional moments of care for self is really, really important. Right. 
So I might say for some homework for you, I know you're already doing so much homework. I would say to do one thing every day that is intentional care for self. Fine. It's funny because this is like my inner Puritan comes out of like, no, you suffer through it. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We're not going to be soft. It's not okay for you to stay home from the gym. Gym is self-care. And we're going to, like, beat you into doing it. I've been struggling holding the dialectic around the gym, too, because, like, I have the thought it's good to move my body to kind of get some of the emotions out. Mm-hmm. And there are days where I get there and I sit in the parking lot and I'm like, I don't want to do this. And Ruth is like, maybe listen to your body and go home. And then I have the Puritan in me. I was like, no, we must go. Like, this is healthy for us. God damn it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to tell. Am I avoiding self-care or is going home self-care? I don't know. It might be helpful to really try to get into wise mind, right? Like around the gym when that's happening. Mm-hmm. Observe like, okay, I really don't want to do this. and Maybe I need to listen to myself about that. Because, and even noticing those thoughts of like, no, we have to do this. Like, this is what care is, right? Kind of noticing like, oop, there's like Puritan brain. There it is. Yeah. Let's maybe shift from acting on that, right? Yeah. My aunt also pointed out, like, it's impossible for me to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Mm -hmm. Like, they're attached to me. I can pull you up by your bootstraps and you can pull me up by my bootstraps, but I cannot pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Nope. <sighs> Idioms. Weird. Um, so just that phrase is like, pull myself up. Like, that's an impossible thing I'm asking of myself, Joy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, one thing every day that's self-care. On purpose, as opposed to being like, well, I'm embroidered today. I guess I'll c- categorize that as self-care. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Got it. Minimum one thing. <laughs> if you do more than that, great. If not, that's okay. As long as it's one thing. Just fund it. Welcome back to the future. One of the things that struck me as I was listening back to all of this was that there are a lot of times... A lot of things that I mention that are like screaming, how did you not know you were autistic, Joy? How did no one notice this? Like I mentioned wanting to create a branching tree of how all these different ideas are related to each other. I also talked about the grief and isolation that I have of not having language for my internal experience. Again, big red flag. Do some research, Joy. Maybe you're autistic. And At the time this recording was made, I had done a bunch of online assessments and talked about that in previous episodes, but I hadn't actually had my formal diagnosis yet. That would come about, I think, a month later. Since then, I have, in fact, been formally diagnosed, but yeah, there are a lot of of things I listen to now, and I'm like, oh, joy, that's obvious. Another thing I wanted to mention is that all the TikTok videos that I mentioned in the recording are linked in the description if you want to go and take a listen to the full videos. They're all from creators that I respect a lot and who are uh, remarkable in their ability to distill very complex ideas into kind of bite-sized pieces. 
Oh, and before I forget, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. We actually have a new supporter this week. Andrew from the great state of Washington started supporting me on Patreon. So a huge, massive, gargantuan thank you to Andrew. Um, as well as to the OG Patreon supporters, Anne and Ruth. Y'all are superstars and are 94.7% of the reason that this podcast exists for public consumption. So thank you so much um, to you guys. And if you, dear listener, would like to support this podcast in the same way, uh, a link to my Patreon is in the description. So that pretty much wraps it up. Um, I don't have any more to add. This is already a very long episode, so I'm just going to end it here and do my typical sign-off of ending super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.